we are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. You're listening to White Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. My name is Kean, and here at the Cabin in the Woods, located somewhere in County Cork in the south of Ireland, we tackle stories of the strange, always trying to remain critical, but never cynical. At least as much as possible. You know, there's some folks out there who kind of don't really deserve it. But we, you're very welcome to this episode. This is all about ley lines with Sharon Hill, and it's we have a tremendous conversation tremendous episode coming up for you and I do have a few things to cover first so firstly I haven't done an episode for a little while nothing really nothing unusual no good reasons for it no good excuses just life kind of happening you know stuff around here at the cabin needs doing and um, it is getting into autumn so spooky season thinking about some ideas for potential halloween episodes last year we did kind of a mega deep dive into the borley rectory story so i'm thinking about what i can come up with that might i don't know if if i can come up with something to rival that but hopefully something equally fun. Now I have a little postscript to our last episode all about Flat Earth with Eddie Guimant and in that episode you may recall, cast your mind back all those weeks, now we did talk a little bit about this idea that the Nazis believed some weird things about a hollow earth, in particular the idea that they might, some of them might have thought that the earth was not only hollow but that we are in fact on the inside of the curve and there was a story about an expedition sent into, I believe, uh, the islands off the north coast of Germany to basically go out into the ocean and point uh, telescopes up into the sky, you know, as if they were trying to look for the uh, British ships on manoeuvres on the other side of the world, you know, by looking straight across the void of the interior hollow earth. Now, I'd always kind of written that off as a a bit of a far-fetched tale, but um, as Eddie kind of uh, related on that particular episode, it is tied to a very reputable guy, uh, Gerard Kuiper, who is, of course, very famous in the history of astronomy. And just as a little extra to that particular story, Eddie got in touch to say that. So he's working on a book, as we mentioned, about Lovecraft and astronomy. His co-author on the book is Horace Smith. And Horace uh, listened to the episode and just had a little extra to add. So he said, um, I can add a little to the discussion of Gerard Kuiper. Kuiper is per- hopefully I'm saying that right, guys. <laughs> Huge apologies if I'm not. I believe it's I believe it's Kuiper. It is perhaps best known today for his work on solar system astronomy. However, during World War II, Kuiper was involved with war work. And towards the end of the war, Kuiper was a member of the top secret Alsace mission. Their main task was to ferret out how far the German atomic bomb project had progressed. As a result of his participation in this mission, Kuiper followed the army as it advanced into Germany. He was able to meet European scientists in the closing days of the war, and some of the groundwork for Operation Paperclip was laid. Uh, This is discussed by Derek Smears in his book Gerard P. Kuiper and the Rise of Modern Planetary Science. So that kind of adds a little bit as to like why might Kuiper have where might he have come across this information why might he have been speaking about it so thanks to Horace Smith for that and um, worth just reiterating again as I did in the last episode uh, that this particular story about you know um, 
Nazi Navy types looking, pointing telescopes up into the sky, you know, believing in this hollow earth. Uh, Kuiper didn't write this in some pulpy magazine for attention. It's buried in a, a very dry and kind of boring scientific article uh, that he wrote about ger- the state of German astronomy after the war, if, if memory serves. So just interesting to get a little bit of background as to where he might have come across that particular idea. So while I'm thinking of it, I'll do a few other things. Uh, you can reach out to us, as always, folks, over at Twitter. We are at Strange Ireland or on Instagram. We are White Atlantic Weird Podcast. And as usual, if you want to help out, it's massively appreciated if you send us a coffee over at buymeacoffee uh, forward slash buymeacoffee.com forward slash wide atlantic and no weird big thanks to horace this time for starting us out with some lovely java thanks horace oh i have a cool thing to mention here so the sunday just before last the podcast got a mention in the sunday times magazine which is was was a nice surprise and um i went around uh, the immediate vicinity trying to get a hold of one but it wasn't it wasn't until on monday that i found out that we were mentioned and um Actually, it was quite difficult to get the English Sunday papers here on, on Monday, as it turns out. Like that old Father Ted joke, you know, we can we can get you anything you want, but not the English papers. And we're in Critics' Choice. It's only a small shout-out, but it's a nice one. And um, it says, White Atlantic Weird is a personable... <laughs> the word personable is used. Irish show looking at why people believe in the world of the strange and a critical look at cryptids, UFOs and conspiracies with the host Kian drinking his beer of the week. And they did spell my name wrong, so you can't have everything. But I, it's, it was a nice surprise. And um, I suppose, you know, when I was a kid, if, if something you were involved in made the papers, the local papers, that was pretty cool. If something made the English papers, that was always regarded as being kind of like a, a, a bit of a step into a, a wider world. So always exciting uh, to see the name in print. And we're next to a few other cool podcasts like the Folklore Podcast with Mark Norman, uh, we've got Mark Reese with Ghosts and Folklore of Wales, and we have Folklore Scotland podcast as well. So really, really chuffed to be mentioned uh, amongst those fine folks doing really great work. So uh, when I announced this Ley Lines episode, I, we had some good interaction online. So I just want to say thanks to Lisa listening in Dublin, who uh, wanted to show us her uh, her Ley Lines book. Um, it's just called Ley Lines. And thanks to the folks over at Folk Horror Revival, who do great work, you probably know them, and um, they showed me the cover of their book, Needles of Stone. So it's it's just fun to see when it, when we cover a topic that, you know, people have all these books um, lying around in their, in their rather enviable paranormal libraries, some of them. And if you're wondering, Kian, do both of these books have Earth mystery covers with, you know, pictures of standing stones and a setting sun behind them? Well, yes, yes, indeed they do, because that is exactly how you put a cover on a book like that. So, what am I drinking for this episode? It is Bullet Bourbon, and uh, I'm still sitting out the front of the cabin because it's still just warm enough to do that. Uh, Kind of like putting your jumper on territory, or your sweater, if you're in other parts. And yeah, I'm very excited to to show you this interview, bring you this interview. Um, It's been lovely to have uh, Sharon on, and um, I'm sure a lot of listeners are familiar with her work, and I've absolutely mentioned her work previously on the show and uh, I've I've benefited from a lot of her writing and her speaking over the years so I'll just mention her bio here so she's geologist author and science communicator with 25 years of research and writing about anomalous natural phenomena paranormal beliefs in society paranormal pop culture science and society cryptozoology fortiana and geologic topics so 
in this episode we are talking all about the concept of uh, what Sharon calls spooky geology. We're focusing on ley lines in particular because it's something I've always been interested in and I asked her if she would be good enough to speak about it and we do drift into some other interesting stuff like the stone tapes theory as well. I actually think I might be a little harsh on the Nigel Neal stone tapes uh, film which a lot of you will be familiar with. I actually do love it but uh, I think all I mention <laughs> on the uh, on the show is that it's a bit loud and there's a lot of shouting which um, is true as well but it's a good show well worth your time. So with that uh, said this is my chat with Sharon Hill. Well, gee, I've been sort of trying to sit in the middle between um, a skeptical scientific point of view and paranormal community. And, you know, that's that's a hard place to be. But I have a science background. I, I'm, I'm a geologist. I have geoscience degree. And I also have a master's degree in education um, regarding science in the public. So my effort has been to talk to people about um, paranormal ideas or fringe ideas in a way that is a more, you know, rationally based way of seeing it. And I'm trying not to be closed-minded. I understand people have experiences and I think that those are really interesting. I've always been fascinated mostly by natural uh, anomalous phenomenon. So anything from very Fortean type things, you know, rain of frogs, all the sort of weird stuff like that, strange lights, especially, but not UFOs as much. Uh, but um and, and ghosts, uh, cryptozoology has always been my favorite too. So really the more, the, the, the things that relate to natural, so I'm not too much on the technology things like UFOs or, or um, but people always ask me about that stuff too. And there is a crossover between strange lights versus uh, alien craft. So I, I try to be open to everything, but um, I spent quite a bit of time in the skeptical community working for um, PSYCOP, CSI now, and uh, James Randi. I worked for him for a couple of years and was really into the scene, but it just didn't, didn't sit right with me. I felt I wanted to branch out and I really did spend a lot of time examining strange news stories. So tons of weird stories come across the mainstream news or tabloids or ghost sightings or, or um, strange animal sightings, uh, strange things that happen around the world. So I looked into those for a number of years on my website, Doubtful News, and that actually did re really well as a crossover between the paranormal community or people who were in that fringe or Fortean community and um, my skeptical friends, because I tried to sit in the middle and say, look, here's the information that the mainstream media didn't tell you. This has happened before, and this is what it could be. And I, I think that was well-received, well but honestly, I got kind of burnt out on that. So I shifted into Spooky Geology, which is a rather new project. It's been going on for a couple of years. Yeah, I, I must say, I will we'll, we'll mention your um, your news roundups, I think, because I've been enjoying them. And <laughs> this week you mentioned the, the I, I think every couple of years, somebody comes up with a plan to like uh, bring the mammoth back or <laughs> right <laughs> those, those things. So if, if folks are interested in um like you say, roundups of a kind of strange stories from weekly news. That's one of the, the projects that you're doing at the moment. I've been enjoying. Yeah, I do it. I do a newsletter every week, just sort of curate the best, most interesting stories for people to just take a quick look at and have a little fun. I must say, I've I've enjoyed your writing in the past on ghost hunter groups and how that mm -hmm. kind of got a new lease of life in the early 2000s and um, the sort of uh, the, what what you call the scientifical <laughs> the idea yeah. of. 
these groups who are doing fundamentally unscientific things, but have the trappings of, of science, which I think is something that goes back a long way in the history of people studying strange phenomena. It absolutely does. Uh, amateurs uh, doing interesting things. Uh, it, there's actually a concept called serious leisure, where people sort of define themselves by what they do in their leisure time. And this is especially true for people who go out ghost hunting or urban exploration or cryptozoology, you know, they're Bigfoot hunters. They really feel that this is a passion that gives them purpose and they feel like they're doing something usually to help people, especially ghost hunters that feel like they're actually helping people. So I did that as part of my master's thesis, looking at all amateur paranormal investigation groups. It was mostly in the U.S., but it was also popular in other countries as well, where they mostly communicated via websites to the public that says, look, if you have a problem or if you have an incident or claim or, or experience, we will come and help you examine these. And about half of them said that they were scientific or they used science. So I wanted to know if they really did. And they didn't. Uh, they weren't scientifically trained. What they, and this sounds harsh, but it, it, unfortunately it's true. They learned science, I'm using my air quotes, from what they saw on television, whether that be the ghost hunter TV shows or um, dramas or movies or whatever, they thought that science was just blinky gadgets and being very technical and methodical. And that's really not what it is. So I, I wrote my thesis on that. I turned it into a book called Scientific Americans because I thought it was really interesting that people want to use science, but they don't know how. And it doesn't mean they can't contribute. So that was my contribution to that, that community. Don't know how well they, <laughs> they really took it. A few did read it. Um, I know that uh, Cliff uh, Barkman from Finding Bigfoot or ordered it from me that, you know, we're friends and, and we had a talk. And so, yeah, it, it was my attempt, but you know, it's probably a crowd that's a little hard to reach. Yeah. And it's a fine line to tread as well. I yes. Think. Yeah. And I definitely, um, I'll, I'll put a link to the book and I'll put a link to, you've given talks on the subject over the years, mm -hmm. which are which are available. And I'll put links to those in the notes. And I suppose myself, like growing up, the books I had, a lot of them were from the reprints of stuff from the 70s that was reprinted in the 90s, a lot of the Osborne stuff and right. books talking about people like Harry Price and, um, you know, films like Poltergeist and stuff where, which really gave the impression that ghost hunting was a scientific thing and that universities would have these departments, you know, and, and <laughs> I was always reading about J.B. Ryan and um, the, the Zenner cards, you know, which are used in Ghostbusters. And so, so that's kind of why I guess I missed out on the ghost hunting stuff. I, I wasn't following it at the time. Most Haunted was probably the show. Yes. That yeah. I and that I, I believe that that had a huge influence that that crossed over into the U.S. as well and, and spawned, um, you know, the TAPS crew for Ghost Hunters. And, and then that just you had a couple uh, teams, so to speak. You know, you were either on the Ghost Hunters team, the TAPS group, or you liked Paranormal State, which was the younger, more edgy, demonic hunter type people. Or then you had the Ghost Adventure people where you had your ghost bros with Zach Bag. And so when you go to these local conventions, like I think the one that was, was really eye-opening was I went to Dragon Con, which is a really big convention in Atlanta. Uh, sci-fi but it also deals with with a lot of scientific topics as well because you have that crowd there that's interested in space and and the environment and all sorts of interesting things science technology and to see the interest there of 
uh, like groups would go to see like Josh Gates, who is on um, many paranormal shows and tries to portray a sense of seriousness. And all they could do was ask him, what's the scariest thing that ever happened to you? And they were just fascinated by that, but they were just so passionate and into it. And this to me is an important phenomenon. This is what people really like. And for us to not pay attention to it or to brush it off. I think there's a lot there. I think there's a lot of interesting things still um, resonating with, with paranormal thinking, magical thinking, you know, an, an enchanted world. People are really into that and we probably should pay attention to it because it's, it's worthwhile to, to look at. Yeah, I, I think it's absolutely huge. And, and every time in the past, I think people have thought, oh, we've broken through this, you know, per period of superstition into a period of rationality these things come back in different ways and okay. they're not going away. There's something fundamental about it that we are built to, to believe strange things. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, speaking of amateurs and, you know, amateur science versus uh, more professional science. And um, that kind of feeds into our topic today, because I've asked you out of all the things you've written about um, on your blog and uh, that you've spoken about over the years, I wanted to learn more about ley lines. And I know mm. you've um, you've spoken about this previously, but uh, you have some new information on it. You've been doing some new reading. And um, I'd like, I, I think it might be an interesting case study in something which has a lot of input from amateurs in the early days mm. and something which right. went from a thing which I, I believe was not that spooky originally uh, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> became a little bit more mystical over time. Sure. It, it is a good example of amateurs starting something, something that sounds science-y, and also that it, once an idea gets loose in the culture, it can go its own way and people will pick it up and run with it. Um, and it, to me, I picked it up because it, it has to do with geology. And what I wondered was if it, how much it had to do with geology, how much people were saying it had to do with geology, or was there something real in geology that might be uh, equivalent to it or might have given some people ideas about it that we can use to explain what people thought about lays. So um, I did look at this in, on my spooky geology uh, site under the category of earth mysteries. And, and that's, I'm using that really broadly earth mysteries because it kind of has a distinct term in the paranormal community. And one of those things that fall under earth mysteries is the idea of ley lines or any kind of energy that's traveling through the earth. And um, so I did pick that up at, at, at a couple of years ago and I started to read more. It's not that there's new stuff about it because really the new material coming out isn't any different than the old. <laughs> and what you, that's a common theme, right? You, you have these fringe topics that you probably could consider pseudoscience because they never build, they never grow, they never confirm their theories and, and, and expand. And this was kind of the case. So where do you want to start with, with lays? I'll, I'll say, could we define our terms? Like, so spooky geology is, is, I believe your term, and I'm interested in how you define that. And um, earth mysteries is a term that makes me think of, again, old seventies paranormal <laughs> books with pictures of Stonehenge and, and uh, anything ancient is okay. you know, by necessity weird and spooky. Um, so what do those terms mean to you? I, I took spooky geology from my friend Jeb Card's book, Spooky Archaeology. He did this book. It was a fantastic book. He's an academic. It's an academic press. This is the book that you really should have if you're interested at all in pyramids, mummies, 
uh, Indiana Jones, those types of things, and and why archaeology is seen the way it's seen in the public. And I said, can I steal the spooky part? And he said, absolutely, go ahead. So I made it spooky geology because I'm looking at things that are the intersection of legit geoscience with the paranormal, spiritual, mystical ideas, supernatural ideas. So I generally look at those subjects that people tie to the earth uh, in a magical way, or maybe earth processes or earth products like crystals, for example, can be spooky because they have all sorts of weird qualities, people think. So I present the established version, but I want to make an effort to understand why people believe these weird things. And, you know, not that many people have a geologic background, then they don't really understand it. And uh, nobody else was doing this intersection, really. There's a very few people that do sort of dark geology or folklore type geology. Geomythology is actually growing as an idea. So how people um, took actual geologic events, but it worked into their mythology of their, their culture, um, volcanoes, earthquakes, things like that. So I have like five categories, dangers, anomalies, alternative geology, which would be, you know, the flat earth or the hollow earth or the, the flood myths, um, paranormal places, which is probably my favorite. That's kind of huge. And earth mysteries and earth mysteries. Like I said, I use it generally, but it really is about the idea that the, that the earth has secrets or qualities that we can't quite, quite grasp or understand with the scientific process, but they may be energies or powers that we can tap into. Mm-hmm. And later the word became very strongly associated that. And of course it did appear sort of in the late sixties and seventies. It wasn't, it's not that old. It became really strongly associated with dowsing ley lines, sacred geometry, those types of things. Yeah, that's wonderful. And I, I know um, Jeb Card has spoken about, and, and I think Peter Hiscox has written about how it, for them, are, one of the primary ways in which people in the public um, think about archaeology is through the means of spooky things and supernatural things yes and and yes. you're doing like do, do you feel it's similar with with geology do people think that there is something inherently mystical about anything that's ancient anything that's within the earth yes so you know the idea that maybe the earth is a living being that's a very popular and oh, Gaia, there's kind yes. of been this yes there's been this resurgence resurgence of an enchanted landscape things are enchanted and like, like you said previously, we thought that science would come through and sort of eliminate those types of ideas. But people didn't want that. They want the enchanted world. So we're back to thinking that rocks are magical and certain places have a, have a spiritual quality. And you know what? You could kind of feel that if you're right there in that, in that moment, if you're in a place that feels so magical or weird because it's just naturally overwhelming to you you could feel that and and it's i think it's a normal human human quality to feel um a connection to the landscape or want that connection to the landscape and and the earth i think it was harry price who said um something like people don't want the debunk they want the bunk (laughs) (laughs) feels good yeah then yeah you're right there's also this i mean there's nothing like it's a real feeling to want to feel connected to place and to landscape. And it doesn't have to be an unhealthy thing. It can be a very positive thing. Um, I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a, an ecologist and a, a conservationist. Those are ways in which we try and interact with the landscape, you know, in, in ways which are meaningful and to some people are maybe spiritual. Uh, but yeah, as you yeah, like I- point out, I think it's important to dis- distinguish between when we are doing science and when we're doing something else. I just read this very interesting article and I forget it was in another country. They were trying to protect a natural area 
And they realized that just saying that this is a natural area, it's special, it's a special uh, ecosystem, wasn't enough to get people to make the sacrifices that they needed to save this area. They needed to connect it to the mythology or the folklore. And the more folklore was attached to a place, the more people felt like they it deserved to be protected. And that's a super important idea. And you know, we're 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 looking at places in the world that we're trying to protect for various reasons. Maybe we really do need to tie that to people's social and, and spiritual beliefs because that makes that tie that much stronger. Wasn't something similar done in, in the Himalayas with, with a park that was created, you know, with the <laughs> ideas of the Yeti in mind and, you know, wasn't, wasn't that, the, some of the work done on the Loch Ness Monster was done by uh, Scott <laughs> who, who wanted, he was trying to promote right. conservationism. Yeah. So you can use those things and there's nothing wrong with that because people find value in that. That's their value. Why not incorporate that into a larger value system? Let's let's get to the ley lines, uh, Sharon. Tell tell us a bit about the guy who the idea is mostly traced to a fellow named Watkins. So who is this guy? Right. So um, there were several people who maybe had this idea, but Watkins really was the guy who popularized it in Hertfordshire, probably in the in the early 1920s. So he was an amateur archaeologist. He was a businessman, landscape photographer. So very much an amateur, but liked these ideas. So he belonged to the local antiquarian club. And so what they did was they liked old things, they liked historic things, they had scientific interests, ancient buildings. But on June 30th, he writes, 1921, he had this epiphany where he was out uh, in the landscape, just walking around, and he saw that a straight line were connecting these features that he could see in the distance. And these were places of prehistoric or historic significance. And he saw them as being aligned across long distances in the British countryside. So he was looking at things like henges, barrows, uh, curses, uh, building sites, monuments, tours, sometimes even holy wells or places where churches were. So he started to map these points and he found more of these straight line connections, uh, regardless of the terrain. And that doesn't make a lot of sense, but he was sort of thinking them as like waypoints. If you're you're an ancient person and you're trying to get from one area to the other, if you get to a point and you look in the distance and you could see the straight line of the point you want to get to next, then you can more easily travel there. Um, So he went looking for these things and he found a whole lot of them. And he was the first to give them the name called Lays. And Lays generally means it's got a couple of meanings but generally it means like a woodland clearing so it was some towns were end with the word lay or l-e-y or l-y and um that was the idea of connecting these these places along a line later on they became lay lines which is kind of redundant because lay means line the way he used it so his um his ideas were not that well received. He wrote, he wrote in 1922, he, he made it public. He wrote a book called The Early British Trackways. And then, but in 1925, he wrote his book, The uh, Old Straight Track. And that really caught on. And I think it caught on for a number of reasons. I'm, I'm not the only one who, who, who thinks this, but it, at the time, there was this very strong national sentiment in Britain for the romance and lore and legend of the British ancient heritage. And Watkins encouraged people to take that map and go out walking, what I, what eventually became known as rambling, 
and you would try to find features along these lays, or you would try to find lays themselves by connecting the features. And this was a great time had by all people take that pit mix out and they would, they would have a good time at this. And so you can see where it really tapped into the amateur idea of getting out in the field and doing real world archaeology. That's what they felt like they were doing. So um, the idea started to get picked up and it became popular, even though it wasn't at all accepted by the archaeological community. And, um, you know, we can see that gap between the amateur and the professional fields. Even today, we have a hard time making that connection. But there were really no mention of lays as special lines of energy at that time. Watkins didn't really have that idea. He, his was purely utilitarian. And I guess I'm I'm interested in this time period because it seems like a, a fertile period for, you know, your, your classic English eccentric coming up with odd <laughs> idea. I mean, this is the time of Margaret Murray. Uh, this is the time when, you know, there's a kind of an occult revival going on. And um, I've been reading Triumph of the Moon. The, you know, Ronald Hutton spoke about the, the kind of origins of like what we now call Wicca. So he goes back mm -hmm. to the late 19th century and the 1910s and 20s. And he's just laying out how at this time in England, there was a fascination with the old times and with this imagined pagan prehistory and it's yeah. funny isn't it that you like he and in a way what he was doing was not that um like like you say it was utilitarian it was just a way of getting did he see it primarily as just a way of getting around the landscape just a, a useful yes you know? i i i it does not seem that he ever was into the occult type um ideas about it now i think by the time he passed there. It was, it was that way. It had been picked up, uh, but he was in love with his idea that he formulated and he got a lot of attention from it. Uh, he wanted to be taken seriously by archeologists, but he just wasn't. But so his idea went out there and people just ran with it and decided what they wanted to do with it. And, you know, it was careful measurements weren't used. The discoveries weren't authenticated. They were, everybody could be very loose and casual with the results, but people could connect to the past. And it was fun and it was exciting to imagine that ancients had this method of order that had been forgotten and lost and now they were rediscovering it. So it was a very um, exciting time for people to go out and reconnect to the past. And I think ghosts do that same thing with us. If we go on ghost tours, we feel like we can make that, that personal connection to the past. So there's many ways that people can do that, but um, Lay's was one that, that you could take, take it and make it what you wanted. I suppose it's a bit like going up, going on your Bigfoot hunt at the weekend, you know, yes. it adds a little extra frisson to your, <laughs> your camping trip or, you know, looking at yeah. UFO spotting was bigger like what, sure what did they used to call it in Britain in the 70s like UFO hunt you know you go up onto a hill and you you look out and and it just adds <laughs> a little fun. extra yeah yes that's and, and like you say it, it does connect people to to a sense of place which mm -hmm. I think is something that we, we see more and more now people are, are kind of craving for um, especially at that time when there was all this worry about oh you know industrialization is changing us and we're losing touch yes. with, with the old ways and with the folklore and with the uh, with, with the landscape. Hmm. Yeah. And there was definitely a kernel of truth, I think, in the lines. I mean, it's not too far-fetched to think that some of these things were done in alignment. Uh, city planning sometimes is done in alignment too, but there wasn't really any, an, a, a, an idea that it was done deliberately um, in, in, in to go 
hundreds of miles across the landscape was a bit too much. But there were existing ideas about straight line segments, um, corpse ways or ghost paths, spirit paths, fairy trails, things like that, that people had this folklore about these straight trails and whether you should uh, cross them, whether you should put a house on them, how close you should, what you should do with them. You shouldn't move the stones that are there, the standing stones, things like that. So there was a lot of superstition wrapped up in this. And I think that that helped popularize the idea of, of lays. I have a slightly technical question. How did he decide which, um, which points would count as his lays? Like, was he choosing stuff from you know, thousands of years of history or was he more, was he precise about it? It's yeah, he was not precise. And I think that a lot of people who are looking at the past telescope it. So yeah. they, they crunch everything together. So it, yeah, that, that was another problem was he was connecting points that weren't uh, associated in time. And to him, that was okay because he felt that there was a spot that was continually built upon that if it was an ancient structure, then at a certain time that structure decayed, they would rebuild on that spot some other special structure so that they were continually used. And um, I, I, it, it added to the sense of significance, I think. Uh, but his idea was just to connect four points made a lay. Mm. That's not really statistically significant in an area where there's all sorts of things that you could put on the map and, you know, how thick is the line that you draw on the map? And so it really didn't, it didn't make a lot of sense. And then when you get to stretch a line really far, like say the St. Michael's line, which is one of the most famous ones is what, 500 miles, you start to lose the straight line. Is you that start the one to going down the West country? Um, it's the one that goes through the Glastonbury tour and, and, and right. all the big ones. Yeah. It connects all the dragon sites, I guess. Um, once you get a line that long, you start to get a skew from the curvature of the earth. So it, it doesn't, it doesn't really work. It, so, so like, I, I feel if I took out a, an OS map here an ordnance survey and looked at it um, and I just, I was pretty loose with my categories and I was like, right, there is a cathedral. There's a church, yeah. there's a, a portal dolmen you know right like what why how am i choosing them because they're they're significant to me you know because i i I'm like oh that's old it's you know therefore it's important but like and also you mentioned he he would get around this by saying well maybe before that cathedral was there there was a pagan church or there was mm -hmm. some other site which again in the 1920s was a huge you know there was this desperate need to believe that the the remnants of pagan survivals were still around and we could trace things that are still existing to, you know, stuff from pagan times, which I, yeah. I, I'm reading in Trying for the Moon was it was a big current idea at the time. Yeah, so you could really see that play out in, in Lays as well. And uh, I think that that helped give it this magical quality later on, where now if the places were continually built on those spots, or if they were built along this line, maybe the line was there before the structures. So now we flipped Watkins idea of the structures were, were built and, and the line was created because of the structures. Now the line came first and the structures were built upon that line. Well, why? Well, the line must have some special significance. <laughs> now we're, 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 we're moving into more of the magical ideas about it. So speaking of which, um, you know, you've mentioned he was connecting important 
mystical places like like or places that have mystical ideas about them like Glastonbury mm-hmm. and, and again do you think he was doing that deliberately or did some of that stuff come along was that mythology that was built up later I'm not sure I mean I think Watkins ideas uh, he he saw those places as significant but his ideas were adopted by people who are very much more imaginative <laughs> so um it became to the I read this one this one thing that I think was in Mitchell's book, it was in a new view over Atlantis, which is a rough book to get through <laughs> if, if you're at all a rational person, but it's, it's well-written. So, you know, it is easy to read, but weird. Um, he, he came up with the ideas that these structures were then rebuilt by supernatural powers, lifting the blocks to the top of the hill, or that the, the landscape itself was molded uh, on these ley lines in conjunction with the astronomical features. And it just got way too weird. Um, so you, you start to see that idea that these places have an inherent magicalness about them. And uh, so, so no longer are you talking about buildings, you're talking about infusing these places with, with additional magic. So when does that change happen? When, when do we move past Watkins kind of utilitarian idea into the more mystical stuff? I don't think it took too long uh, <laughs> because it was, no, it was, it was something that was caught on by the dowsers eventually liked it. But, you know, in the sixties, right before the sixties, it, it began to be a little bit weird. In 1958, there was this idea out of France that um, Ame Michel was the guy who wrote the book called Flying Saucers and the Straight Line Mystery, because he said that flying saucer or yeah they were they weren't called ufos yet flying saucers in france traveled along these invisible lines across great distances and they were sort of grid like grid like in uh, they were special paths along the terrain and well that didn't take too long before saucers became traveling along ley lines in these straight paths and that just took about a year or two before people picked up on that. <laughs> so now you have UFOs using ley lines and again, people getting imaginative, well, they must be lines of energy or special significance. So they're pulling from the earth along these lines. And that was like 1961, Tony Wedd, they said was the guy who first made that connection that UFOs used lays as trackways. Uh, the Lay Hunters Club 1962 i i'm not sure when watkins died but i think that he was still around when these uh, strange ideas were, were coming to pass and he didn't really like them um the lay hunters club was founded i think by ufo seekers in in 1962 and 1969 was mitchell's the view over atlantis which really made made stuff popular so the lays were changing definitions pretty quickly from from watkins original ideas um, and then we can get into Mitchell's strange ideas that he popularized at that point. Yeah, so are we get, we're now getting into sort of 1960s new age kind of territory. Is that? Yes, very much so. So, um, you know, it really did play in with the ideas that uh, hippies, you know, like this idea that the earth had these spiritual qualities. They were very romantic ideas about the earth. Um author Nigel Pennock, I was reading his Magic in the Landscape, he describes looking for lays as, and I love this, a mystic quest <laughs> that helped capture people's imagination. And the drugs helped. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, again, I suppose as an ecologist, I find it interesting how this is wrapped up in you know, somewhat more scientific takes on the same, like the Gaia hypothesis and all of that. Yes. And, you know, there's, it it absolutely does make sense to view ecosystems as, you know, larger functional systems that have their own, you know, you can think of them as, I mean, the idea of the superorganism was big for a while, Mm -hmm. you know, so this does parallel real ideas in science to some degree. Yeah. So this nice feature that they could use however they, they wanted it. So now, um, think of the earth as a living thing, well, lays could be the arteries or the nerves. So that's how the the energy was traveling or the veins of energy flow. So it was also made equivalent to chi, the pathways that were said to be utilized uh, with by acupuncture uh, technicians. So the earth was like a body. And at one point, they said these standing stones that were placed in certain areas were like acupuncture needles into the earth. And then the stones drew the astronomical energy into the earth and helped combine the terrestrial and the, <laughs> the oh sky energies. It was just really creative stuff. Um, I think and, that was used in Foucault's pendulum or Umberto. Echo. Yes, that was exactly, it's, it's like the exactly. main conspiracy theory behind everything that. It, the, it, yeah, yeah. We'll get to the Tillery currents. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think, I think like, again, like all, all of the, the classic mystical places on earth, like the pyramids and um, I think like Mount Shasta and, and they even work in like the Eiffel tower are like structurally built to tap yeah. into this in some way. Yeah, they're all over the place. I did see one graphic where it made like a sine curve around the earth and it connected places like Mount Shasta and then it went down into South America and went back up and it connected important places. Oddly, it missed some certain important places. It just, or, or it connected places that were like, really, that's really not so. Do you people know, draw possible. them to be kind of symmetrical? Like when you look at entire globe maps of them? If you look at the one for Seattle, uh, it looks like pickup sticks. I don't know if you guys have this yeah, game over there. Yeah, where you just drop that. the sticks and there's all these straight lines all chaotically all over the place. Because just think about it. If you have a number of points on a map, you can draw a number of different lines connecting them. I don't know why you would just make a certain orientation of the line unless you're actually counting the points and it's mathematical. But you can draw. Why couldn't you draw concentric circles? It just isn't really. It's very chaotic. Yeah. Certainly in, in parts of Europe where there have been towns and cities for, you know, thousands of years, like it would be hard not to, if you drew random lines, it would be hard not to yeah. come across something of significance. Exactly. Exactly. Well, that, there's the fun of it, I suppose, is anyone can do it. And it's, <laughs> yeah, you feel like, you feel like, again, it, it just brings an extra something to your walk in the countryside. Yeah. And, and they used a lot of these pseudoscientific jargony terms like energy and electricity and magnetism. Uh, I know Mitchell notes that they were lines of magnetism or there was magnetic energy and no, no, because (laughs) you can measure that. Yeah. You can measure those things and nobody has ever been able to measure the energy coming from so-called lays. And if you can't measure it, it probably doesn't exist except in your head. Um, Because if it's got some sort of energy, we can measure that. We can measure really, really minute amounts of energy and that's just not what's happening with these so-called lines of energy they're they're maybe they're a new kind of energy i don't know but stone yeah. shape energy maybe yeah. <laughs> there's a the word energy does a lot of heavy lifting sometimes um, <laughs> it really does <laughs> you 
it, it is whatever you want it to be sometimes. Yep. And again, it does remind me a little bit of Stone Tape stuff, which, mm -hmm. well, I mean, T.C. Lethbridge wrote about it in the, when was that, in the 50s? Well, Lethbridge had the idea of these fields that could capture memories or something in the environment and play back. So he never called them stone the stone tape. He actually liked the idea of water better. Hmm. Um, but it was definitely the idea picked up by uh, Nigel Neal, who, who who wrote that movie, the Stone okay. Tape. Does that is that where the name comes from? Yes, the movie okay. the, the, the the name comes from the movie. And it, it makes sense because it the stone did kind of act like a tape where it recorded emotions and then played it back at certain times. What a great, what a great movie that was. I just I, enjoyed that yes. so much. I rewatched it recently. There's a lot of shouting in it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the I love the punch cards on the computer, yes. the old computer stuff, and that the, the computer was oh. was feeding. Who do you know? There's a fellow who writes a blog about hauntology, and um, he has a wonderful article about how the the analog technology of of the 1970s, you know, informed our thinking. And like, yeah, like of course we would come up with an idea like the stone tape theory in the 70s when we used magnetic tape as our primary. Yes. Perfect. It's, yeah, it's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> but it's still used today. Uh, stone tape is one of my more popular posts on mm. spooky geology because it's still used by ghost hunters today. And the, the story about that goes, um, it was actually the stone tape idea that prompted me to, to start Spooky Geology, because that was the key to this idea, the perfect crossroads between the paranormal and the geologic ideas, because I saw so many people saying, well, the, it's the geology that's causing people to have these experiences in the area because there's quartz in the rock or there's limestone. I'm like, what are you even talking about? So I look, I tried to look into it to find where they were getting these ideas from. And there's really no basis to it. It probably even goes back all the way to psychometry where, where people believe that, you know, back in the, 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 you know, Victorian age where people believe you can pick up an object and get the impressions of whoever had held the object before. And my favorite story is about this geologist Denton, who thought that the field of geology would be revolutionized by uh, psychometry, because all you could do would be pick up this rock, certain people who were, you know, predisposed to, ha to, to this, having the skill, pick up a rock and you could know the history of that rock. Hmm. And I'm like, when, when it was, you yeah. know, formed, when it was, uh, you know, erupted onto the surface, when it was eroded, when it was reconsolidated into a different rock. I mean, when it was just, yeah. it didn't make any sense. What's the granulation here? What are the units? Yeah, exactly. It just didn't make any sense. But stone tape is still kind of a popular idea with ghost hunters. I don't know if it's, it was very popular in the UK, it definitely made the jump over here and people use it all the time. I wonder, do people like it because it kind of removes the, you know, religious angle? You know, we're not saying we're, we still get to believe that people see ghosts, but we're, they're not, um, they're not the souls of living people. They are, you know, just this kind of unknown, um, you know, scientific thing that we don't understand yet. Right. It, it, it does, it does sound very sciencey, the idea of stone tape, that emotions are released maybe during a tragic death and that they're captured in the environment and then they can be played back sometimes. So again, a chance for us to connect really specifically mm. with the past event is, is mm. a nice idea. And it just doesn't work. I mean, I, I live about 35 minutes away from Gettysburg national 
battlefield. And it's very popular idea there that the quartz in the rock, and again, I'm using my air quotes, quartz in the rock has preserved the two days of battle that took place there. And all these people were, you know, maimed, injured and died. And now at certain times, uh, special times, you go back there and you could feel that being replayed or you could see that being replayed. And that'd be a nice idea, except there's absolutely no quartz in that rock. It's actually extremely quartz poor. And oddly enough, it's very quartz poor. And there is no limestone there. So they, there's, there's actually not a lot of water there except for the streams because the, the, the rock there is pretty tight. It's hard to drill a well there. There are so many things that go against the stone tape idea at Gettysburg, but yet people continue to use it because who's going to check mm. what they're saying? Only the geologist, and there's not that many of us. <laughs> no. And I, I, you make it sound very um, emotionally satisfying as well, like the the desire to believe that you know when we feel strongly about something, it matters, you know, on a, mm-hmm. you know uh, on some sort of deep level, and therefore the energy has to go. It feels like the energy has to go somewhere. Yeah, and yeah, it, it's satisfying, isn't it, as an idea? Yes, that it's recorded, it is captured. It's a lovely thing. Yeah, it is <laughs> very much so. Are there any stories about ghosts directly, like moving along ley lines or traveling on ley lines the way UFOs supposedly do? I I have heard a couple um, where, you know, ghosts would continually, the, the legend is that ghosts would continually appear at the same time or at the same type of uh, environmental conditions. And people would then jump to the conclusion, well, there must be a ley line there that they're manifesting from the energy there. Um, I think there's even a couple connections with lights traveling down ley lines, things like that. So, and of course there's rumors and, and legends where you're not supposed to build a house there or a ghost would come through the house that was built there because it is a ley line. It's not a very strong connection, but it seems to be just something that you could use because it's convenient and nobody can check and it's vague. So you could use it and it sounds great. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to ask you about the telluric currents. Can you talk okay. a bit about that? Because it shows up all the time when people talk about lace. Sure. So, you know, the earth conducts electricity. It really does. It's, it's, we use it as geologists. We use it all the time. We take probes and we put put them in the ground and we run electrical current in it and the conductivity or the resistivity gives us a picture of what's underground. And in some cases it, it runs really nice and, and easy and clear. And we know, oh, well, there must be water there because our fracture zone there where the water's running. And that tells us that it's a conductive area that something's going on there. And it, and it, it informs what we're going to do with that land or how we're going to build on it. So, uh, power plants, you know, we rely on that idea of feeding the energy back into the ground of grounding our houses for electrical current. So yeah, the the earth conducts electricity and it may, uh, if there's an ionospheric storm, it changes the electricity, uh, the current running through the ground. If we have, you know, magnetic, we have magnetic, there's magnetic lines on the earth. There's, there's magnetic anomalies in the earth. So these things are real. Telluric currents are just any type of, of current that's going through the earth. And it's, it's very sciencey sounding, um, but it's not a ley line. Um, the, the ley line ended up being, you could take that energy and m- uh, manipulate it or, or tap into it. Um, and that doesn't really work with telluric current. It's just too weak. 
And are they are these um, changing constantly? Are you know like waves in the ocean, or are they are there you know like predictable, repeatable? Are they are, have they been mapped? Is it that sort of an, an energy movement, or is it? It's it's pretty vague. It's pretty okay. vague. It's for, for what I could tell. I'm I'm. It's not my area of expertise, but I do know a little bit about it. But yeah, it's it's it does change, and it does change with the environment. And conductivity will change based on many different things. So yeah, it's it's not something that you could really map. Although you know, if you do have, and this would get into the idea is of are ley lines related in any way to real geologic situations. If there is a fracture zone and there is water running through that fracture zone, that will be conductive and it will also probably erode more. So it will show up as maybe a lineament, a straight line path. Um, so yeah, yeah, there's a slight, slight little basis to that in reality. Hmm. I, I guess sometimes when these um, ideas parallel real scientific thinking, I, I, I sometimes feel it's almost an accident. Like I, I doubt that the folks who came up with these new age versions of ley lines, you know, were reading this or, you know, were inspired. I don't know. I feel like sometimes it's added on afterwards, like, you know, quantum can do whatever you want it to. And in Victorian times, you know, magnetism or electricity did whatever they wanted it to. Yeah, that's a really interesting idea, because that's kind of how I was thinking about it. I was thinking, well, maybe they recognize that there are line geologic lineaments. And what if those geologic lineaments were mapped as ley lines? So I looked into that and they weren't. So <laughs> that idea was busted. <laughs> so what, um, like what are the lasting repercussions of this idea in, in culture today? Where does it show up? Is it popular in the paranormal community still? Is this commonly mentioned when you go to conventions or when you're talking to um, folks on the believer side? Uh, yeah, a couple things. I think the, the idea of earth mysteries, earth energies, man connecting to the earth and the ancient past is really big. I mean, we have the whole ancient aliens idea. So there's uh, the idea of a mystical energy is still really big. And uh, I think that romantic idea that we have of nature, some people really find that compelling still. Instead of astronomy, there's still astrology. If mm you know, romantic geology, or romantic zoology, you could say cryptozoology, it's still popular. And earth mysteries is kind of romantic geology, you might say. So I think these, these ideas are still popular. And of course, the aspects of secret knowledge, uh, secret energy, really big right now, the whole ancient aliens thing, hidden sources of power and magic. We have this resurgence of maybe paganism too. So yeah, we're, we're seeing that resurgence. Conspiracy, obviously. Uh, there's still a lot of that around rejection of modern science, really big people want that. They don't want science. They want something magical. They want a magical cure, a magical uh, reason. Uh, also that the old ways were better. So this idea that the ancients knew stuff that is now lost, still huge. We can't confirm this stuff. Uh, okay. I can't, I'm, I'm sorry. We can't disconfirm this stuff. So it's really appealing to a lot of people and people make money off, off these types of ideas. And there's still many superstitions about uh, lays and ancient remains, like, especially when they're, they're related to places like Stonehenge or uh, any, any types of standing stones that still have that mythology associated with them still connects to the idea of ley lines. But I, I mentioned previously, I had been to Dragon Con and I was there and um, 
a guy who knew that I was a geologist, but I didn't know him. He was a ghost hunter came up to me and said, this was probably, oh my gosh, 2011, something like that. He came up to me and said, what are you, you're a geologist. What's the deal with ley lines? And at that point I had no idea that there was a paranormal connection with ley lines. I knew them in the utilitarian sense. And he says, oh yeah, we, we, we find that ghost sightings often are connected to these ley lines. I'm like, wow, I'm going to have to look into that. So I went back and I looked into it. And just around that time, they were starting to become popular with the ghost hunting community that as, as a cause for, for hauntings and paranormal activity. And the Ghostbusters movie of 2016 used ley lines as a primary plot device. And my mouth dropped open when I saw that movie. I could not believe it. There it was laid right out on the screen. Ley lines and vortexes were the cause of the paranormal activity. Amazing. Amazing. What <laughs> happened when you saw um, the recent uh, Godzilla and King Kong where they, they have the hollow earth as one of their primary. Oh, that was great. That was great. Not, not, a not a new idea though. You know, that's also a great uh, thing that you could use to, for all sorts of plot devices. It's definitely a trope. It's, it's a heck of a lot of fun. I was, uh, I was more interested in seeing how they depicted the prehistoric animals, if they were accurate or not, but no, they were completely made up. <laughs> They didn't, I, there weren't even any dinosaurs, were there? They were just no. sort of made up kind of dinosaur adjacent yeah. creatures. Yeah, pretty much. But that's fun. <laughs> then, I was like, it makes me think about poor old Watkins. Like he never had a chance of keeping this from getting spooky, did he? I mean, that's true. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, he just didn't like it. the dousers really took a hold of ley lines and said you could douse the ley lines and dousers just expanded you didn't need to just find water or metals you could find energy lines and and again dousing is gee it just has no basis in reality but it is still so incredibly popular i get the most hate mail from dousers the people who say it absolutely works for me and at the bottom of the post i have on on dousing i believe i actually wrote do not write to me and say, uh, this happened to me and, you know, here's my story. Just don't do that because I won't believe you because I get so much of that and I wasn't there. And you know how dousing can be very subjective as well. And people just really, really want to believe that you could have some magical skill. So interesting. Uh, I really do admire folks who go out and fight the good fight. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 it does get wearing yeah. yeah i'm not sure i could do it myself um <laughs> is there anything we haven't covered on this on this particular story that you think is worth mentioning uh i i started recently i started like i mentioned i was reading uh mitchell's book and john mitchell is a 40 and hero to many people and if you really want to see or, or read a book that has no basis in reality just completely made up stuff but he does it so well uh, he connected ley lines to feng shui and dragon lines, uh, Lung Mai of, of the Chinese version. And he found equivalent to ley lines all over the world, the Australian song lines. And like I said, the, 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 the dragon lines. And of course, in South America, you have Nazca lines and, yeah. and things like that. So his idea was that these are all over the world and they all mean the same thing. And they all mean that the ancients had superpowers. So it really is 
it's just a lot of fun to to find how people can take these ideas and make them their own and such a flexible idea like really is yeah you can see why on the surface yeah of course you can connect it to all this stuff it sounds similar well if you have no yeah if you have no rules (laughs) if you're not connecting them to, to science in any way you can do whatever you want with them and and i don't I don't mind that. I, and people yeah. don't understand that I, I don't, I don't come down on ghost hunters or Bigfoot hunters or anything like that because do what you want, have fun, it's your life, enjoy what you believe in, whatever. But when they start to say that this is science or this is a scientific process, that's when I get angry and say, no, it's not. You can have your belief. Your belief is whatever you want it to be, but don't start calling it science because it's absolutely not. What was um, Paul Devereaux's take on it? I don't think we've mentioned him, have we? No, and he's an interesting character. I I talked to him a little bit via email when I was doing my work on earth lights. I I did earthquake lights, which is a subset of earth lights, but I really love the idea of earth lights. And he was very uh, instrumental in naming earth lights and, and popularizing them. So he was the editor of the Lay Hunter magazine and he started out believing in lays. And from what I heard, he, he gave this information in an interview. He no longer believed in it. He did extensive research on things like this, uh, including the dragon lines and, and ideas about places having special powers or significance. Um, and he no longer believes in ley lines. I find Paul to be a very uh, reputable person to listen to. Sure, he may have some ideas that didn't pan out or they may be a little bit fringy. But he seems to be a very reasonable person. I, I always enjoy his work. Interesting. I, I, I must look into it. So I'll, I'll see if I can find something maybe of him talking about this. And I'll put that, that in the notes as well. Mm-hmm. Great. Cool. Um, so I, I always ask folks at the end, Sharon, um, where would you like people to go and check out your work? We've mentioned some of some of your blogs and things like that. Where, where shall we direct listeners to? <laughs> well, let's see. I mean, I'm pretty active on Twitter. I, I do have a lot of things going on. Um, my main website is SharonAHill.com, where you can find my bio, and I have links to some of the things that I've done. Uh, SpookyGeology.com, if people are interested in uh, Earth mysteries, anomalies, alternative geology, and paranormal places. And I do the weekly newsletter of uh, Weekly Weird News which is my fun for Friday. I, I, I still like to look at weird news stories and gather them up. So that's on my Substack site, which is SharonAHill.com. No, SharonAHill.substack.com. Mm-hmm. Too many websites. <laughs> but you can probably just find all that on my Twitter, which is, Great. I doubt it. I'll put all of those in the notes. I, I will say as well, I enjoyed your article last year about the, I think the Mysterious Monsters documentary. Right. Yeah. I was listening to that episode. Uh, yeah. Um, that gave me a bit of background to the episode about one of the other Bigfoot documentaries that we watched recently. So that helped a lot. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes, it, 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 like you said, it was very hard to unravel how these films came to be made. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I found the same thing. And I also use uh, Joshua's book, The Life and Times of Bigfoot. So that was yeah. Yeah, a, deal. That's, that's a lot brilliant. of fun. Yeah. I, th- I think having a, a background knowledge in sort of exploitation filmmaking from decades gone past kind of <laughs> helps you realize what desperate characters some of these guys were <laughs> i i have to admit i have an in um with blake smith of monster talk podcast uh, shares some of his movie collection with me so if he finds a zinger like that and that's how i saw that film uh he, he shares it with me over um plex so i was able to see some of these 
old time, including the stone tape. That's how I saw it. So he's able to get these things and share them. And I was so grateful because I feel enlightened <laughs> by them. As do we all. <laughs> Taryn, that's tremendous. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. And that's it for this episode, folks. Well, almost. I have a small story related to Earth Mysteries. Uh, many years ago, when I worked in the south of England, I was with a company that had several properties in the area, one of which was a big old uh, historical building, a listed building uh, from the 1700s. It was, it was a mansion. And the company was doing some work on the grounds. And the fellow in charge was a, was a, a scientist, a zoologist, and... Um, one of these kind of eccentric scientist types that uh, England is known to throw up from time to time, and he was definitely something of a character, but I had never known him to have any unusual beliefs. He was, as far as I knew, a a, a consummate man of science, and in fact he, he had been connected earlier in his career with some fairly big names in zoology, at least according to himself, and... Um, before this development on the property was getting started, he actually hired a dowser to come out and check the area out. Um, and he, I think he, I remember him saying that he was looking for pipes, uh, making sure that there wasn't any pipes under the ground that were going to get um, disrupted. And of course, pipes carrying water, the idea that the dowsers would be able to detect them for that reason, I suppose, would have been um, the reason for doing it. And uh, yeah, just that one time, um, a little bit of Earth Mysteries crept into... Uh, my life there and uh, I never heard anything from him about that before or after so uh, sometimes uh, these beliefs are out there even where we don't expect them so as always folks uh, thanks for listening you can help us out over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wide atlantic and you can say hello to us on twitter where we are at strange ireland or instagram where we are wide atlantic weird podcast so until next time stay safe and thanks for listening we are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You'll prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. <laughs>